For our scripture lesson this morning, let's turn to Matthew, the 18th chapter, where I'd like to read for you verses 15 and following. Matthew 18, beginning at verse 15. As you're turning to that passage, you'll notice that is not the announced text in our bulletin. This doesn't happen very often that there's a program change at the very last minute after the bulletin has been prepared. But then again, it's not often where um, a burden is laid upon the preacher's heart and the uh, feeling is that it's necessary to make that kind of change. I only remember three times in my entire life as a Christian and attending church regularly where that sort of thing has happened. And in each case, it has been where um, something very important had to be communicated. And one of those mornings has arrived for us as well, and I trust that you'll forgive me for departing from the announced program, and at the end of the service you can judge whether it was a um, faithful thing to do. Matthew 18, beginning at verse 15, Jesus speaking says, And if thy brother sin against thee, go, show him his fault between thee and him alone. If he hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he hear thee not, take with thee two or uh, one or two more, that at the mouth of two witnesses or three every word may be established. And if he refuse to hear them, tell it unto the church. And if he refuse to hear the church also, let him be unto thee as the Gentile and the publican. Verily I say unto you, What things soever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and what things soever you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say unto you, that if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Then came Peter and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? Until seven times? Jesus saith unto him, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times seven. Therefore is the kingdom of heaven likened unto a certain king who would, who would make a reckoning with his servants. And when he had begun to reckon, one was brought unto him that owed him ten thousand talents. But forasmuch as he had not wherewith to pay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, and his wife, and his children, and all that he had in payment to be made. The servant therefore fell down, and worshipped him, saying, Lord, have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. And the Lord of that servant, being moved with compassion, released him and forgave him the debt. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred shillings. And he laid hold on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and besought him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay thee. But he would not but went and cast him into prison till he should pay that which was due. So when his fellow servants saw what was done, they were exceeding sorry, and came and told unto their Lord all that was done. Then his Lord called him unto him, and saith to him, Thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all that debt, because thou besoughtest me. Shouldest not thou also have had mercy on thy fellow servant, even as I had mercy on thee? And his Lord was wroth, and delivered him to the tormentors till he should pay all that was due. So shall also my heavenly Father do unto you, if you forgive not every one his brother from your hearts. And thus far the reading of God's word. Today's exhortation is entitled, Closing the Circle. Closing the Circle. And when we um, finish, we come round to the end of the sermon, when we close that circle, I trust you'll understand what it means to close the circle. We'll come to that in a minute, but I want to begin, first of all, with a riddle this morning. Everybody loves a riddle. Everybody loves a puzzle. I want you to work this one out. There's a question for those who have studied and studied and studied. The more you studied, the more likely it is you're going to miss the answer to this one. The riddle is, what is the strongest muscle in the body? What is the strongest muscle in the body? Stop and think about that. What is the strongest muscle in the body? 
Right? Your children, do you think it's your little finger, the muscle that controls your little finger? Is that the strongest muscle you've got? Or maybe it's this muscle here in your bicep. Is that the strongest muscle you've got? Well, no. Most people would probably think the upper leg, your thigh muscle. That's awfully strong. We can do a lot of kicking and pushing and walking and all sorts of things with that muscle. Isn't that the strongest muscle of the body? Well, let me give you a little hint, lest you be misled by the way I'm going down these options. In a sense, I'm talking about spiritual physiology here. I'm talking about actual muscles in the body, but which is the strongest spiritually? What is able to do the most work? Now, I know the adults don't listen to the children's sermons, so they'll have no idea what we're talking about. But the children have undoubtedly figured out what we're talking about. They have a way in their sincerity of heart of catching on very quickly. But for the sake of you adults who are lagging behind, not understanding what the strongest muscle in the body is, I give you another riddle. Which muscle is it that can most easily destroy the church? You might think, well, obviously, that would be the muscles that are used, for instance, for strangling people or stabbing people or shooting people or killing people. Because if you use those muscles, then you can kill off people in the church. But you know, there's a really interesting phenomenon in the history of the Church of Jesus Christ. Um, and it's typified by the slogan that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. You know, the more you use muscle against the church, the more it thrives. In fact, later on, I'll have occasion to say in my exhortation this morning that I almost wish that we lived under intense persecution because then all of our problems would be external and not internal problems. But anyway, the more the external opposition to the church, the more it thrives. The church thrives on opposition. It makes people band together. It makes people share with their persecutors. It, it does wondrous things. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. So that isn't the muscle that can most easily destroy the church say our arm muscle or our leg muscle that carries people away to the lions or what have you. No, interestingly enough, the muscle that is the one that can destroy the church most readily, effectively, and permanently is one of the smallest muscles in the entire body. James, the third chapter, says that this muscle is the tongue. That, spiritually speaking, in terms of spiritual physiology, is the strongest muscle in the body. Can you imagine somebody trying to guide a ship with his tongue instead of having a rudder down there just trying to use his tongue to make the whole ship go one way or another? To guide a horse one way or another just by using your tongue? No, you can't do that, can you? Just not strong enough. James tells us, however, that the tongue is very strong and he likens it to a deadly snake. A deadly snake. You ever watched a rattler before it strikes? You know, we usually think because of the rattler's tail, uh, the shaking of the tail, that's the most important thing. But you ever notice that a rattler before it strikes has its tongue out? And we know that as a matter of actual physiological fact, the poison isn't in the tongue, but that is symbolically the location of the poison in the mouth, actually in the fangs. The rattler's tongue comes out and strikes. James tells us in chapter 3, verse 8 of his book, But the tongue can no man tame. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. The tongue is just waiting there, you see, to strike, to do its damage. I had a missionary once, many years ago, come to the church that I was attending and tell us uh, that the most dangerous snake in all of the um, uh, jungle was not the python. You know, that's the one that gets all the attention. If you want to really get people worked up about snakes and let them know what snakes can do and how yucky they can be, you tell them about these long 30-foot pythons, you know, that can strangle cattle and swallow them and all the rest. Really um, terribly strong snakes. But that snake is not, for all of that, the most deadly snake in the jungle. The most deadly snake is the small little 5-inch black asp that you can hardly see. Just wiggles around, but it's got enough poison in it to kill you within moments. 
The missionary said, that's what we always, we don't worry about the pythons. You see a python, you have plenty of time to get away, plenty of ways of dealing with that. But that little black asp, if you should happen to come across it, and it strikes you on the ankle, you're dead. James says the tongue is just like that. It's powerful, not because it has the muscle of a python, but because it has the poison of an asp. James chapter 3 is a very important chapter in understanding Christian sanctification. For James says, In many things we all stumble. If any stumbles not in word, the same as a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body also. You want a measure of a man's sanctification? Look at the way he uses his tongue. Look at the way he uses his words. James says, if that man can control his tongue, then you know he's a perfect man. Now, wait a minute, you say. A man may very well be quiet and not ever slander his brothers and may not use his tongue improperly, but he can still be a fornicator. He can still be a thief. He can still be a murderer. James says, no. If the tongue can be brought under control, you know that the rest of the body has been brought under control, too. Now, if we put the horse's bridles into their mouths that they may obey us, we turn their whole body also. Behold, the ships also, though they are so great and are driven by rough winds, yet turned about by a very small rudder, whither the impulse of the steersman wills. So the tongue also is a little member and boasts great things. Behold, how much wood is kindled by how small a fire. And the tongue is a fire. The world of iniquity among our members is the tongue, which defiles the whole body and sets on fire the wheel of nature, and is set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and birds, creeping things, and things in the sea is tamed, and hath been tamed by mankind, but the tongue can no man tame. It is a restless evil, it is full of deadly poison. Therewith bless we the Lord and Father, and therewith curse we men who are made after the likeness of God. Out of the same mouth come forth blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not so to be. Does the fountain send forth from the same opening sweet water and bitter? Can a fig tree, my brethren, yield olives or vine figs? Neither can salt water yield sweet. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by his good life his works and meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and faction in your heart, glory not and lie not against the truth. This wisdom is not a wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly sensual, devilish. For where jealousy and faction are, there is confusion in every vile deed. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without variance, without hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace for them that make peace. James goes on and on about the way we speak and deal with others and how there is an attitude of uh, easy entreating, whether there is um, uh, the proper use of the tongue. So important is that for James that he says it's the, it's the mark of genuine religion, that when the tongue is not under control and when we don't speak properly, then there's a real question whether we aren't just hypocrites in claiming to be Christians. James 1.26 says, If any man thinks himself to be religious, while he bridleth not his tongue, he deceives his heart, and this man's religion is vain. He deceives his heart. That's very um, eye-catching to me because I did um, three or four years' work of research and writing on the whole question of self-deception, the ability people have to deceive themselves about things. This is one of the um, very few verses in the Bible that uses that very expression. To deceive one's heart is to deceive oneself. Heart standing for the inner part of man. And James says, here is the mark of self-deception in the Christian life. The outstanding mark of self-deception is a man who claims to be religious but doesn't hold back his tongue. James says that man's religion is vain. Indeed, the 15th Psalm of David in the Old Testament, Psalm 15, lays down a list of requirements or conditions for those who would have clean hands and who would dwell with the Lord. 
David says, Jehovah, who shall sojourn in thy tabernacle? Who shall dwell in thy holy hill? Who has the right to come before the presence of God? Who can dwell with God? David says, he who walks uprightly and works righteousness and spares and speaks truth in his heart. And then verse 3, he that slandereth not with his tongue, nor doeth evil to his friend, nor taketh up a reproach against his neighbor. See how important the use of the tongue is? The use of your tongue is a mark of whether you really walk with God. A person who walks with God doesn't take up an easy reproach against his neighbor. He speaks truth in his heart, seeks not to slander with his tongue. So the tongue is the test of genuine religion, the test of a relationship with God. It is the smallest, not the smallest, I suppose, physiologically, but it's certainly a very small muscle, and yet it's the most powerful, most destructive muscle in the entire human body. Now, why are we talking about the tongue and about its ability to destroy the church? In my own experience, I've seen a church, one that was a thriving church, a church pushing 300 people, which for a reformed conservative witness in our day is very good attendance at church, a church that was filled with programs, had a youth program that you just couldn't believe, very active youth program, and an evangelistic program, people turning out for its prayer meeting, had a men's uh, barbecue society, uh, the women, the missionary society, was extremely active. I mean, it was a church that just seemed to be a model fellowship. And something happened in that church that um, at the time struck me as being untoward, but hardly, uh, you know, worth bringing uh, to our attention, really. It was just a minor beef between two people in the church. That church today now is cut down from 300 to doing well to gain 60 people to come out, has split three times. That church has no thriving program, does not have an evangelistic outreach. Its session is choked, frankly, from doing its work. And there is fear among everybody that anything that is said is going to do greater damage to what has already happened in the church. You say, boy. Isn't that an extraordinary experience? I mean, isn't that what makes that noteworthy, that that has happened to a particular church? No, as a matter of fact, it isn't extraordinary. It's very, very ordinary. In our day and age, there are usually two types of churches. Churches that are so public relations oriented that they never deal with internal problems and just continue to grow and grow and grow and don't take care of the the sheep themselves and the problems and interpersonal difficulties. And then there are churches which refuse to do so, knowing of it and, and seeing that there are difficulties, refuse to handle them properly. There aren't very many churches that know how to tame the tongue. When an opportunity arises, a spiritual challenge comes up. You know, those who, um, those who are really walking with God seize on it. And they say, this is something that we're going to take into hand and we're going to conquer in the name of Jesus Christ. And an opportunity, I think, for demonstrating how churches should operate when it comes to these sorts of things sets itself before us. We get to test now the genuineness of our religion, our walk with God, how controlled our tongues can be. We, too, day by day, every week as part of the normal course of life, but all the more because of recent events in our own congregation, get the opportunity, have the opportunity by God's grace to see what kind of unity we can muster and what kind of character we have when it comes to our interpersonal relationships. Today's sermon is entitled Closing the Circle, and my purpose is not so much to expound one passage of scripture, but to lay out for you three ways to deal with, first of all, irritation. When something has happened in the church that irritates you, or someone has done something that irritates you. Secondly, how to deal with complaining, murmuring, things we don't like. Thirdly, how to deal with insults, 
Fourthly, how to deal with offenses when somebody's actually done something that has wronged you. And fifthly, how to deal with criticism. That is the whole range of potential uh, matters for um, being dissatisfied with somebody's performance or the church's performance, your Christian brother, your session, your wife, what have you. How do we deal with these things? Well, the world has some real good ideas for how to deal with these things. And as James says, you can see how peaceful the world is. He goes on to say, where do wars come from and fightings among you? As you lust and all the rest. I mean, the world, because of the selfishness of the world, doesn't know how to deal. Doesn't know how to deal with criticism, complaint, irritation, offense, and all the rest. But we have been given provision for this. We can be equipped for these sorts of things. God has given us many ways, but I'm going to outline for you this morning three ways to deal with things that irritate you when it comes to the church. Things that seem to offend you with another person. Things that irritate you, bother you, that might lead to some kind of alienation if it's not taken care of. Three things. The first is concentration. I'm going to flesh this out in a minute. The second is toleration. And the third is confrontation. Concentration, toleration, confrontation. And there may be other ways to present it, but this is what the Lord's laid on my heart to present to you this morning. First of all, toleration. Let us assume that Mr. So-and-so has said to Mrs. So-and-so something that a third party thinks is not quite right and may be just a little underhanded. However, it doesn't appear that there's really been any lie involved. It doesn't even appear that there's been any malice. But it is something that is like a pinprick. You know, it's there and it's gone. But if you think about it long enough, you can get pretty upset even about a pinprick, can't you? Have you ever gone to the doctor and the doctor says, this is going to hurt for just a moment as I give you this shot? Now, sometimes I know you get shots and the medication itself stings or uh, causes a reaction. But often enough, the only irritation you have from uh, an injection is just the needle entering the skin. And now, have you ever seen how a child reacts? You're going to get a uh, shot in the arm and just kind of watches and watches and watches. Well, I'll tell you, that pin going through, or that needle going through the skin has got to be almost a life-and-death situation. Okay, We have a very good pediatrician, however, and uh, even if the child knows there's going to be an injection, the pediatrician will engage the child in some other kind of interest, usually a very positive, constructive, enthusiastic thing, going to a baseball game or uh, something like that, and then before the child knows it, he's got the needle in there. The child continues to talk, looks down, no problem. What is the difference between the child that is in fear and trembling over that needle going into the arm, just watching and watching and watching, and the child that's talking about a baseball game and can have the same experience and just kind of wince for a second and then go on? The difference is the concentration of the child. What is the child concentrating on? Now, one of the best ways to deal with irritation, pinpricks, in the Church of Jesus Christ is to make sure that our concentration is in the right place. And I want to suggest that the concentration, especially for a group such as ours, our concentration ought, ought to be on positive growth and concern for others. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but if you are taking care of somebody that has a really big problem and you're really concerned for that person and giving your time and your counsel your interest to somebody who, say, is outside your family. You know the little things that happen in your family? No big deal at all. Because your concentration is on something else, somebody else's problem. Usually a problem much bigger than the little thing that's gone wrong in your family. And that's true also if we have a positive interest in the growth of our church. If our church is growing, we're interested in people who are in uh, sin, who do not know the Savior, and we're interested in, in gaining them for the Lord and getting them into a fellowship 
where there can be a edifying experience, praising God and growing together, if that's our positive interest, then um, these little pinpricks that come, and they must come, the Bible says that offenses will come. Impossible for sinful people to have uh, an ongoing relationship without one person doing something the other person doesn't quite like. It doesn't even have to be malicious or purposeful, but it happens. But they can be like pinpricks if, first of all, we are concentrating on positive growth and concern for others. Positive growth, concern for others. It's all the di- it makes all the difference in the world whether we are a service team here in this or any church interested, for instance, in taking the prisoner, I mean, not the prisoners, but the wounded in a war and healing them and taking care of them all the difference in the world whether we have a service team orientation or whether we're a club. You know, you watch doctors and the way they relate to one another in an operating room is altogether different, usually, and it ought to be altogether different from the way they relate to each other at the club. You know, when you're serving other people and having to work together, even though you don't like exactly what the other person's doing, not perfectly satisfied, you know that you have another goal, and that's what you're shooting for. And if you reach that goal, that's what counts. But when you're at the club, after all, all that energy in terms of interpersonal relationship is not expended on others, but it's going to be directed at the club and its operations. So that there's bickering, there's complaints, there are cliques, interpersonal problems. And the church has the same situation. If we cease to be a service team, evangelizing others, interested in positive growth, concern for the wounded in this world, and we're afraid we become like a club. And all the energy we have has got to be directed not on the outward growth of the organization, but rather on inward picking at each other. So the first thing we need to do if we're going to tackle things in a biblical way is remember the orientation that was demonstrated by Jesus Christ himself. He came as a man for others. In Philippians, the second chapter, Paul says... If there is therefore any exhortation in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any tender mercies and compassions, make full my joy that ye may be of the same mind, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Boy, he's just really laying it on. What's the problem in Philippi? Why is he writing to the Christians? Well comes right down to this. There were two women in that church that couldn't get along. There were two women that were bickering in the church at Philippi. And Paul gives them a whole chapter. He gives them more than a chapter. A good portion of the book of Philippians deals with the internal problems in the church. Chapter 2 is dealing with this when he says, if you have any concern for me, if there's any exhortation in Christ, if there's any consolation, make my joyful. Be of the same mind. And he goes on, doing nothing through faction or through vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, each counting other better than himself, not looking each of you to his own things, but each of you also to the things of others. And then this famous Christological passage that so often is studied for the sake of knowing the nature and work of Jesus Christ. But Paul is very practical. He has just said to these two women, be of the same mind, consider each other better than one another. He says, have this mind in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God counted not being on equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being made in the likeness of men, being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient even unto death, yes, the death of a cross. Wherefore God also highly exalted him. Paul says, remember the orientation of Jesus was not to grasp at his own things. Jesus didn't on contemplation of coming to earth to be our savior, say, no, wait a minute, somebody might think I'm not God. He didn't grasp at being equal with God, but willingly emptied himself, gave himself over even to being a servant of men, sinful men, and dying the death of a criminal. Remember Jesus when there are internal problems in the church. Remember the orientation and concentration on others that was demonstrated in his life. Secondly, I said concentration, toleration. Toleration is a very important thing. You know, not everything that happens that is more than a pinprick nevertheless calls for something to be said. I've actually seen people go to the doctor at times and have more pain than a pinprick and never say ouch. Incredible toleration. 
tolerating pain at that particular point. Some people have a very low threshold of pain. They can hardly take the pinprick, but there are some people who can go and even have stitches removed and be in pain and take it. Our Christian lives need to imitate that sort of thing too, an attitude that says, you know, not everything is worth talking about. Not everything that is, you know, the person can be dead wrong. I'm not talking about confusing situations. Well, it's a little ambiguous. Maybe this person didn't mean that. No, I'm talking about you know that person meant what they said, and you don't like it. It's just dead wrong. Even then, not every offense calls for an ouch in dealing with it. The Bible tells us that love covers transgressions. Proverbs 17, verse 9. He that covereth a transgression seeks love, but he that harpeth on a matter separates chief friends. Isn't that true of human relations? You can take the most minor deal even, and if you harp on it and harp on it and harp on it and pick and pick and pick and pick and make that wound bleed and bleed and bleed and bleed, it'll never heal. You can even separate the closest of friends. I've wept over a lot of things in my life, but I can't remember things, many things that make me weep more than seeing people who have loved each other for years, have worked together in the Christian church, be separated over something that should have been handled in a biblical way but wasn't. The Bible says love should be able to cover transgressions. We should be able to say, I realize he stepped on my toes, but I can take it. You remember the attitude of Jesus, who didn't, at the time of a minor offense, but at the time of the arch crime of history, said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Can you imagine being crucified and asking God to forgive those who are crucifying you? Love covers a multitude of sins. 1 Peter 4, 8 repeats this thought of the proverb, Above all things, being fervent in your love among yourselves, for love covers a multitude of sins, using hospitality one to another without murmuring. The next time somebody does something you don't like, show some hospitality, Peter says, without murmuring. Let love cover a multitude of sins. In our scripture reading for this morning, Jesus deals with this forgiving spirit he has just talked about closing the circle. We're going to come to that as our third point this morning. But Jesus, having spoken of how you're supposed to deal with offenses, Peter comes to him and says, Well, now, Lord, how many times do I have to forgive my brother? Seven times? And, you know, Peter was being very proud. He thought he had really, that Jesus, I know the attitude you're talking about. I'm willing to forgive somebody. Look at this. Seven times. Now, before you, you know, get a little haughty toward Peter, how many of you are willing to forgive the same offense seven times? I don't know that many of us have much toleration beyond two or three. And by that time we say, this person obviously is not worthy of being forgiven. And we write them off or avoid them or all sorts of other things that show less than a positive, loving interaction with them in the church. But Peter says, seven times, I'll do it seven times. Isn't that right? Jesus says, you missed it, Peter, only by a factor of 70 70 times 7, Peter, 490. And I think you can be pretty sure that if you get to 491, Jesus would say you should go on even at that point. Because he's doing this by way of exaggeration to make the point. And, in, and then he tells this story, of course, of the man who has a huge debt to his Lord. And the Lord's going to have him thrown into prison. He says, oh, please forgive me, I'll pay you. And he says, I'll forgive you, I'll even remit your debt. And that man goes out being forgiven and finds another servant who owes him a few cents. In the, but you can tell the motivation here. The Bible says he took him by the throat, grabs him by the throat, and he says, pay up. And the man says, I can't do it, but I will pay you. Just give me time. And he says, forget it. To the tormentors, to prison. And they say, Isn't, that's amazing. We know we all can feel in our heart of hearts. That's just incredible. How could that, how could that happen? I'm going to help you answer that question. You just look at your own hearts and you'll see how that happens. 
you stop and think of how much God has forgiven you and how little you have been even asked, much less been willing to forgive others. It's so obvious when you put it on paper and tell a story about it, and yet in our lives we just don't seem able to do it, at least in our own strength. Jesus says that God forgives not our sins if we're unwilling to forgive those who wish to be forgiven. Forgive even 491 times. Love covers, you see, transgressions. Proverbs 16:28 says, A perverse man scattereth abroad strife, and a whisperer separates chief friends. Now I'm going to come to the third way to deal with interpersonal offenses. We've said, let's concentrate on the right things so that the pinpricks are nothing more but pinpricks. Secondly, even when it comes to a little more difficult situation, let's have the kind of love that covers a multitude of transgressions where we can have our toes stepped on and we say, that's okay. 491, 492, and on. We'll say, that's okay. But now Proverbs says that perverse men scatter abroad strife. They take offenses, irritations, complaints, criticisms. They scatter them abroad. The whisperer separates chief friends. Proverbs here is really anticipating what I call the church of the loose ends. The church of the loose ends. There are a lot of them around. They all go under different names, Baptist, Lutheran, Presbyterian, all the rest. But they're really the church at loose ends. How is that so? Because it's a church full of whisperers. They don't always have to whisper, by the way, but see, in that day and age, you, you don't want people to hear and say, you want to whisper. You'd say these things behind people's backs. The whisperer isn't always trying to be malicious either. Well, I'll tell you, we can do that very thing with the most honorable of motives. Did you hear what he did? Oh, we should pray for that person. Or could you help me to understand this? Did she really do the following? We can make it seem so noble that the Bible says a whisperer separates chief friends. Those who are the best of friends have been separated. And, you know, I know enough about the lives of everybody in my congregation from here, there, and everywhere, both now, previously, and all the rest, that I don't need to illustrate that, do I? I mean, we are all the walking wounded when it comes to the separation of chief friends because things haven't been handled correctly. Matthew 12:36 tells us every idle word will be brought into judgment. And in Matthew 5, Jesus tells us that our disrespectful words are worthy of hellfire. When you say to your brother, you fool, when we speak of one another in a disrespectful way, James, the third chapter, he talks about the tongue being a world of fire. The tongue sets things on fire. You walk by a field that's grown high with weeds in the late autumn when it's dried out from the summer heat and toss just one little match, that's all, just a flame that's about that high. And what happens? The whole field is aglow with flames. And he says the tongue's like that. And he says the tongue is set on fire by hell. Which is an interesting mixture of metaphors, isn't it? Because we think of hell as being what? Hell fire. And he says that very hell fire operates through the tongue to ignite a field of weeds. And so a whisperer takes a criticism and proceeds this way tells another person, and that person now whispers to another person, another person. Right, now let's say there's another offense over here. And now this whisperer tells this person, who tells this person, who tells this person. And by the way, the second person in this chain tells the third person on this chain something, and now it gets to be a little crisscrossed. And you might say, well, that's simple enough. We can untie that, except that in the time that it took for the session to go deal with this and this, Somebody else was whispering, and it was going this way, and this way, and this way. And all these things were going out, and it was spreading and spreading and spreading, like wildfire, you know, from one point to another. And what happens is that when these criticisms and irritations and offenses keep moving out in a, a linear way, you know, point by point by point outward, that you have all these loose ends in the church. 
And if you want, this is the model of that kind of church. It's a plate full of spaghetti. Everything is at loose ends. Just all these criticisms and irritations and offenses, and nothing's ever tied together. The church at loose ends. The point of today's sermon is how to close the circle. How to close the circle. In Leviticus, the 19th chapter, the Old Testament law, Jesus finds the verse that he says summarizes our duty as believers. When he was asked the question, what is the greatest commandment of the law? He first quoted, of course, the Shema, that we should love the Lord our God with all, all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind. And then he said, the second is like unto it. And then he quotes Leviticus 19, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now we usually, uh, not many people know that he's quoting the Old Testament law to begin with, and they think he's introducing some new idea here. That's bad enough. But even those who know he's quoting the law forget what the context of the law is. Have you ever looked at the paragraph in which that is nothing but a, a contributing sentence? G, uh, the Old Testament says, You shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor and not bear sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but shall love your neighbor as yourself. The mark of loving your neighbor as yourself is that you don't bear a grudge, but you openly rebuke. Oh, in our day and age, that's so hard to do because that isn't what the spirit of our age, that isn't what Christianity teaches today for the most part. That if there's something wrong, not just a little pinprick that you can overlook because we're concentrating on positive things, and not just somebody stepping on your toes and you can say, I can forgive you 490 times plus, but something that just really gets to the very heart of the matter and you just can't take it. The Bible says, instead of going to somebody else and saying, did you know what she did? Did you hear what he said? That sort of thing. The Bible says you go to your neighbor and openly deal with it so that you won't be bearing any grudge at all. The 18th chapter of Matthew in our scripture reading, right before Jesus tells Peter to forgive 490 times, Jesus says, and if your brother offends you, go to him in private. Jesus says, you have a criticism, instead of extending it out this way, and then to another person, and to another person, so that you're at loose ends, he says, go right to the source of the offense. Close the circle. So now it's just the two of you, you see, turned around, dealing with each other face to face. And I dare say, most of the time when you do that, and you do it in the right spirit, that accomplishes reconciliation. But Jesus says, sometimes it doesn't. And when it doesn't, then you extend it, but then you close the circle again. Take another brother with you. Sometimes you have to make it larger, and the whole church has to hear about it. But Jesus is interested in always closing that circle always making criticism come back to the source of the criticism or to the source of the offense. Let's say that I hear that somebody is upset with what the pastor has done in the church. Let's say I disagree with it, or even if I agree with it. And I pass this on to another person. I'm promoting the church at loose ends. I'm promoting the idea of linear expansion of criticism rather than closing the circle and immediately getting to that person and dealing with it. Now, I'm going to tell you something that seems very strange to say for a church that is small and struggling, just beginning, as ours is. It's true of all churches, but just because it's true of all churches, it must be true of ours as well, that sometimes there are too many people in church. Sometimes there are too many people here. You say, that's a funny thing for a person to say who is trying to work up an evangelistic program. In Matthew, the fifth chapter, Jesus tells us about these interpersonal offenses, what we should do about them. And he says, If therefore you are offering your gift at the altar, and remember that your brother has aught against you, leave there your gift before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come offer your gift. Now, what is offering a gift there? In that day and age, remember, they had to make sacrifice so that God would hear them. Jesus Christ hadn't laid down the once-for-all sacrifice. In an ongoing way, they had to bring their gifts to the altar. And Jesus says, in the midst of that religious system, 
He says, if you bring your gift to the altar and right before you're going to offer it to the priest, you remember that your brother has something against you. He says, you drop it right there. Don't continue. That's what most of us will do. We say, well, we'll get through this little religious exercise and then when we get time, we'll take care of the other. Jesus says, you drop the gift right there and go take care of your brother first. And don't come back to offer your gift until you've been reconciled to your brother. John Sanderson in his book on the gifts of the, excuse me, the fruit of the Spirit deals with this passage and he says, our churches are far, far too full. People who have come to offer their gift at the altar and go through their religious exercise without first trying to be reconciled with their brother. People who have not closed the circle but have let criticism, irritation, offense continue. Tail-bearers wound people, the proverb says. And that's why Leviticus 19, right before it gets to the point of saying we should rebuke our brothers openly and not bear grudges against them, says that we are forbidden for acting as tail-bearers among God's people, running up and down, spreading all these things this way and all the rest so that we're at loose ends with one another. We have to close the circle of pursuing a brother who is offended or somebody that seems to us is out of line. Now, when that happens, what do we do? How should we receive somebody who comes to us and attacks us? Paul's way of dealing with this situation in 1 Corinthians 4 at verse 12. He says, we toil working with our hands. Being reviled, we bless being persecuted, we endure. Being defamed, we try to conciliate. We are made as the filth of the world, the offscouring of all things, even unto now. By the way, when my translation uses the word filth here and the margin says refuse, Paul's word is much stronger. Quite seriously, he uses the same word that is found in tavern language and gutter language of our day. He says we're made the crap of the world. But being defamed, we try to conciliate. Being persecuted, we bless. That's the real measure of religion. The real measure of religion is that we bridle our tongues and use them for a positive end. So that in the 12th chapter of Romans, Paul can say, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And 1 Peter 3 says, He that would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile. What should you do when you're attacked? Don't hurl up counter charges against people. Don't silently bear it in a non-committal way saying, well, I'm not going to say anything here. The Bible says go to the other extreme of blessing. Blessing. Being defamed, seek reconciliation. You say, well, that isn't the way the world teaches us to operate. Well, it's true. It isn't the way the world teaches us to operate. But after all, we are not to be conformed to this age, but rather transformed by the renewing of our minds to show what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And the good and acceptable, perfect will of God for you today is to remember how to concentrate, tolerate, and then confront. Concentration, toleration, confrontation is God's way of closing off the circle. And then the church, you see, can be one. A family that is happy, not because there's never anything there to disturb the happiness, but because the family knows how to deal with those irritations. In closing, I want to make reference to uh, something that was a very uh, insightful experience for me Last evening, I attended for the first time an AA meeting, an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, and there are a lot of things there that are worthy of our consideration. But in the uh, meeting, there was a reading of the, what is called the Twelve Traditions, and uh, the traditions talk about how AA operates and uh, some of their policies. And the first one is this. Our common welfare should come first. Personal recovery depends upon AA unity. I thought to myself, with just a few shifts of words, that's something the Christian church ought to be able to say. Our common welfare comes first. Not my individual hurt, not that slight irritation, not my offense with my brother, but our recovery demands unity. 
that we be a church that has closed off the circle rather than being a church at loose ends. Unity needs to be protected because, at least in Alcoholics Anonymous, there's an intense focus on the crucial needs of the group, a single-minded devotion to a particular service that is needed in the live, lives of others. And uh, in that situation, there's often, a, a, I think, a personal leveling that is, uh, that is needed before that unity is possible. Uh, I notice that at the meeting, everybody who speaks has to begin by giving their name and saying that they're an alcoholic. Hi, I'm Jim, I'm an alcoholic. You know, we're not going to do this in our church, but, um, you know, next time you speak to your brother, you might remember, Hi, I'm Greg, a sinner saved by grace. Remember that we're all coming in here as forgiven sinners when we have irritations and problems. And then there's gratefulness that is, uh, it seems to me, needs to be expressed as well. That gratefulness was heard from one person last night who gave this testimony that she didn't feel she could adequately thank those for whom she owed her life, to whom she owed her life. And uh, that really got to me because I remember what it was when I left Denver after my open heart surgery thanking the doctors who saved my life. And it just seemed all so shallow. The words just were not good enough to let them know how much I thanked them. That kind of gratefulness that says, I owe it all to you. I need you. You are crucial to me. And I dare say to you that if we but had that attitude, where we concentrated on all the positive things that had to be concentrated on, where we tolerated even minor offenses for the sake of the unity of our group, and then when things couldn't be dealt with, we closed off the circle, then we indeed would be a church not showing the strength of the tongue, but the edifying power of good speech. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would take our lives and remold them according to the pattern of the Savior Jesus Christ so that we wouldn't be fashioned after a worldly way of dealing with our difficulties. And we pray, all of us, Father, individually and corporately, that you would forgive us for not handling criticism and irritation and offense in a way that is pleasing to you. We pray, Lord, that you would teach us all to close off the circle of criticism, not to let it extend in a linear way, point by point outward, so that we would be at loose ends. We pray that you would give us the humility that was demonstrated in your Son, Jesus Christ, who emptied himself to become a servant of men, that we would show also the graciousness of Jesus Christ, that we would be willing to forgive, that we would be obedient to the directions he has left for your church. Lord, we pray that if there are things that stand between any of those who name the name of Christ in our midst, that if there are even slight criticisms, that if they have to be spoken, they'll be spoken to the correct party and received in the correct way. And we pray that in doing this, as strange and as odd a church as we will be, will be a church that is blessed for our obedience. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.